All right, church, would you open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 25. Good morning. Let's bow for a word of prayer before we jump in. Father, we need peace um, in our finances for sure. But as uh, John led us in a prayer a few moments ago, we need uh, the peace that passes all understanding in a world right now that seems to be uh, overloaded with fear. We know that that's a poor leader. Uh, And so we put our trust in you. Some men trust in horses. Um, Some men trust in their their guns. Uh, Some men trust in a vaccine. But we will trust in the name of our God. Uh, Thank you for all those who are working tirelessly now to come up with uh, some type of medication that could help. But we look to you uh, to organize those minds and those uh, processes. Uh, But beyond that, Father, uh, we realize that there are so many many illnesses uh, around the globe that are so much bigger than this. Uh, Some of us are a little dismayed at how big a deal this is being made, and maybe it's because we're just ignorant. We don't understand uh, the ramifications of how this might spread and its impact on our world. Uh, But we're asking for you to bring some sanity to the chaos and uh, for you to bring some peace into our hearts. We're not the only ones seeking that. Zion Lutheran Church, we know, uh, are gathering today, and they're, they're seeking your peace as well. And we're seeking that you unify our hearts so that we can present to this community uh, one voice, one heart, one mind that believes Jesus came and it mattered. And we pray this in his name and everyone said. I have never lived through a world war. Uh, This is the first time in my life, as a matter of fact, I think I can say I've experienced a calamity that's of global proportions. The coronavirus measures uh, on a Richter scale phenomena the way that it is unfolding now across our globe, uh, and it's altered the life for all of us. Thankfully, it has not been as deadly a virus as some pandemics that have struck our globe. But I'm going to say this, not since 9-11 has an event or a set of circumstances been in my life that has affected me quite this way. A taxi driver after the 9-11 tragedy was asked, how have the attacks affected you? The fellow said, I'm having trouble finding my bearings, actually. For years, I could look up and I could see those twin towers, and no matter where I was in Manhattan, I could always find the towers and know where I was. But here lately... I just can't seem to get my bearings anymore. I think that's hugely symbolic of how many of us feel during these last few days. It's just kind of hard to get our bearings. Some of our college kids barely made it home before they closed the the borders in Europe and canceled all flights out of Europe. It's amazing to me, as much as money means to us in America, that sporting events, both collegiate and professionally, especially the Masters Golf Tournament, has been postponed. Maybe even they're talking the Olympics. And so it's hard for me to register where this actually fits uh, in my perspective. But they've not been able to contain the virus in a way that they had hoped, and it's been a little disconcerting. For several of us, though, the loss of bearings doesn't come from global catastrophes. It hasn't even come from a catastrophe on a national scale. It's come from those that are on a very personal scale. And the reality of cancer, or the reality of divorce papers, or even a phone call about an automobile accident intrudes into our lives, it's anything but polite. 
It's as rude as anything gets, and it turns our world upside down. Life just gets disorienting. We're not quite sure how we got here, and we're certainly not sure how we're supposed to proceed. But one area where many in this room, as well as throughout America, have lost their bearings for certain is in the area of our finances. America is in trouble financially. Our elders are so concerned that they have asked me to take us through a study of God's Word to hear how we might, as a church family, be a light in regards to how we handle our finances. You know this, the number one cause of divorce listed among counselors is financial stress. One of the primary factors in the wave of depression that has fallen over this country is financial stress. The root cause for close to one-third of all suicides is financially oriented. And if it were just a matter of trying to get some information into your hands, that'd be easy. The problem exists on a much deeper level, though. Much deeper than the question, uh, can I afford this? Much deeper than the question of, how do I budget for this? Now, financial struggles at their core are spiritual struggles, even for those who aren't aware of it. They have to do with what's in the heart. They have to do what's in the mind, and every bit as much as what's going on in my checkbook or going on my uh, checkbook balance, my uh, credit card balance. For the last two weeks, we have been looking to Scripture for the basis of how God would have us handle money. We've been having the money talk, we've been calling it. In the first lesson, we looked at the foundational attitude for all sound money management, and it's simply this, it's not about me. That's not. Jesus, more than anybody, taught us that unselfishness is the key to having a great life plan, not just simply a great financial plan. In the first lesson, we watched him die for heaven's sake and for yours because even his death, he shows us it wasn't about him. Then we saw last week that attitude number two flows out of number one. It's all his stuff anyway. If it's not about me, who is it about? It's about him because it's all his stuff anyway. That's what we saw last week. I think one of the first things you have to determine when you're talking about money and how it's to be used in our lives is whose money are we talking about anyway? And the scripture jumps out, page one, God owns it all. (laughs) Does it leave any of us in the dark about who this belongs to? As a matter of fact, we're calling this top button thinking. That if you don't get this button right, all the other buttons right, no matter what they are in regards to finances, just aren't going to line up. God claims, he has claimed, To everything. And that has some serious implications if it's true. And I want to say this, even if you're not sure you believe in God, I can almost assure you that you will agree with me, you came into this world with nada, nothing. And you will leave this world with nothing. So at the very minimum, you and I can agree that everything you own is on loan. Everything. Now, if you do believe in God, that leads us to the third principle we're going to talk about this morning. That since it's all his stuff anyways, how is it that we manage his stuff his way? Make no mistake about it. Scripture is going to advise us how you manage God's trust fund. And I love this. Well, Scripture does not leave us in the dark about this incredibly significant subject in our lives. Now, we're at a disadvantage a little bit because semantically, we don't really use the word, next slide guys, stewardship much. 
We certainly don't use the word steward much in our conversations, but in Jesus' day, it was a very, very common role. You see, he lived in an agrarian society. And most people lived either making their livelihood through livestock or, or farming, and often the owner of either that farm or that ranch would pick a sharp person and choose him to be their steward, their manager, and he would manage the farm. Now, the owner might take a trip, and back then taking a trip anywhere usually involves significant amounts of time. So you might be gone days, you might be gone weeks, sometimes even a month or more to deal with some purchases you need to make or maybe some problems that need to be solved surrounding your little farm or your ranch or even your business. And while you're gone, a steward would be put in control over an owner's property. Now, to help with this idea of what a steward is, I've asked Jason Bratcher if you'll help me. So meet me up on the steps here, Jason. Now, this is a football that made David feel so comfortable a while ago that I received from my uh, son-in-law when he was a trainer for the Texans. And uh, it's signed by one of my favorite players, J.J. Watt. Now, this means a lot to me, all right? But I'm going to ask you to steward it for the rest of our service. It's about as long as I would trust you with it, okay? But before I hand this to you, I want you to understand how this works. Me, owner, you, steward, okay? I'm the master of this ball, but you're going to be the manager of it. Are we good? Now, I'm going to come back after I give this to you, after the services are over, and I'd like to get it back at least in as good a condition as I've given it to you. Now, if you want to polish it or whatever, you can do that. But I'd like to get it back at least as good as I gave it to you. Okay, thanks. Y'all give him a big hand. Now, what you've just seen there is stewardship in its most basic form. In biblical times, while the owner was away, you need to remember, there were no phone calls back to the farm. There was no uh, FaceTyping, no Skyping, uh, not even texting. Now, I know this is hard for many of you young ones to imagine. It sounds archaic because it was incredibly archaic. But when the owner comes back, the first thing that any owner is going to want to do is going to find that steward or find that manager and ask for an account of how they've taken care of his stuff. Now, you might not know this, but stewardship is part of the very first command in the entire Bible. In Genesis 1, the scripture records that God made this and God made that. It establishes that he made everything, therefore he owns everything. But then he gets to the end of the chapter 1 and he talks to the crowning glory of his, of his creation, you. And he says to Adam and he says to Eve, I'm giving you dominion over all this. I want you to be the caretaker of all this. You handle the farm, okay? What an honor. And it always is an honor when someone trusts you enough to entrust their stuff to you. Well, this has huge implications for our lives, doesn't it? Number one, like the environment, for instance. Yes, ecology is a spiritual matter. Because this is not your world, friend. It belongs to God. And He's asked us to take care of every stitch of it, every inch of it well. It has implications for our time. You didn't create time, He did. And he's gifted you the time that you have. He'll determine how much you get too. And he would like to also be in the driver's seat of how you use his time. Third implication. It has implications about how we use our bodies. As Brother Jones read a few moments ago, um, your body, those of you especially who are Christians, God's temple. And you're not your own anymore. You were bought with a price, therefore you're supposed to honor God with what you eat, what you don't eat. How, how, the places you take that body, the things that, that, that you don't let that body do. God wants to be 
Lord over that, okay? Because you were bought with a price. Now, sister, God also made you a steward over his kids. Maybe you haven't thought about that in a while. But God gave you those kids on loan, and he would like for his kids to be raised his way. So this leads us to the last implication, which we're talking about primarily in this series, and that's it. That if God truly is the owner and the Lord over it all, then he gets to call the shots in regards to his finances. I said that, just his finances. What this means is we don't see ourselves as entitled people. We see ourselves as entrusted people. Say that word with me. Entrusted. One more time. Entrusted, not entitled. Nobody in this room especially Christians, are entitled to anything. You've been given a gift. You've been entrusted with something that absolutely belongs to God. So in God's kingdom that we Christians live in, what matters most to us is not what we own. It matters most to us how we're managing what He owns. Are we tracking? Okay. In Matthew 25... Jesus is going to explain the significance of this when he tells us three stories about the owner's return. And in every one of them, Jesus tells the audience that the owner always comes back and he has a question that he asks, how did you manage what I entrusted you well? Now, this might be a good time to just pause and remind you. He's coming back. If you're not a Christian, I know at least you've heard it rumored, Jesus is coming back. Well, I want to remind the church, he's coming back. And if you're a Christian, that ought to be good news. But can I be honest? It it unnerves me a little bit. Because too often we've treated what we have that's his as if it were ours, haven't we? Even though we call him Lord. And so it's good for us, I think, at least for a couple of lessons to consider for a moment the weightiness of what this means. And I want to launch into that by telling a story from Helmut Tillich. He was a preacher who preached at Duthgard at the end of World War II. And he could often, talk about sometimes difficult to preach with the noise in this room, often he could hear bombs exploding while he preached his sermons. One day he was on the road and he was standing before a building that a German bomb had destroyed. And he looked up, and a lady walked up and spoke to him and said, this is where my husband was killed. We never found his body, but this is the spot where he died. And Helmut thought to himself, what do you say to that? I'm sorry. And while he was trying to fumble for the words to say, he, he realized real quickly that she didn't come for empathy. She actually had come to show her gratitude because the next thing she said was this, I came to thank you, Pastor. Because you prepared my husband for eternity. Church, I want you to know that I realize most Sundays the weightiness of these moments. I really do. For a few minutes each week, I have an opportunity to point you to what matters most, not just now, but for eternity. I always hope that I can share with you something from God's Word that both enables you to live life to the fullest now, but I want you to understand clearly, I I really am concerned most about your life that matters after you quit taking your last breath.
For a moment, I want to look at uh, Matthew 25 and the three stories here, and then we'll wrap this thing up. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells three stories to prepare his disciples just for what I'm talking about, eternity. In the first story, there are some foolish and wise maidens who are waiting to celebrate a wedding processional. Five of them are wise. They prepared well, and they are welcome to join that wedding processional and then go and have a great time. But five of them are foolish. They weren't prepared. And they wound up being left out, the story says. But the point of the story is very clear. You want to be numbered among the prepared, or you're going to miss the party. Story number two. The owner gives to his three stewards different amounts of his assets to manage his way. He gives to one five bags of gold, we'll call it that. To another, he gives two bags of gold. And to the last one, he gives one bag of gold. He is gone a long time. But everybody knows that he's going to return, and when he does, he's going to ask for an accounting of his assets. And so he does come back. And when he does, he interviews the first two servants, and they report how they've handled what they were entrusted with. They hear the words, well done. They hear the words, great job, and they're rewarded because they took care of his money his way. The third one, however, not so much. He didn't invest in anything. What had been entrusted to him, he hid. And actually tried to blame the master's character for his laziness. To say the least, the master wasn't pleased. He takes away what he'd been given and gives it to the first servant. And then he punishes him for his sloth. That's a bold ending. Third story. It's about some sheep and some goats. And the separation is going to take place at the end of time. And then we read these words in verse 34 to the sheep. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take the inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world, for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came and visited me. I want you to notice that these folks were told to come and to get their, it was on the last slide, inheritance. Inheritance. Now I'm pointing that because inheritance is not a wage. It's a gift that you receive because someone dies. Now you may be here for the first time, or maybe the first time in a long time. And so can I just remind you about how God saves us? You and I are sinners. That's where we have to start. And we deserve the wrath of the owner of all things, our incredible God. But you see, a holy God can't just blow off sin. That would be unjust. And so, instead of leaving us to pay our sin debt, he sends his son into the world. And then just send him to serve us. No, he sacrifices himself for us on a cross, and an exchange is made if we're interested. He wants to take on... Our unrighteousness there, he's done that already. And he wants to offer you his, but that's an exchange that could only be made if you put your trust in the fact that that mattered at all, and that it matters for you. Those who do put their trust in him are seen in a completely different light in God's eyes. Because you see, you can't purchase salvation. I don't care how much money you have. There's some pretty wealthy people in this room. It's not about a matter of cash. It's a matter about a cross. That's it. Period. 
Nobody can buy their way into heaven. And it's not a wage, it's a gift. You inherit it, never merit it. Now, notice the sheep have no idea that they did anything worthy of the master's approval. In fact, they say to the king, Lord, (laughs) when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or, Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Jesus said the king will reply, truly I'll tell you that whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Now I think certainly you get from this that the sheep aren't in the back boasting. They're not high-fiving when I say, yeah, nailed that. No. They're stunned. You can hear the tone of what's just been read. They're kind of caught off guard because they weren't aware of anybody watching over their shoulder as they extended kindness to people in their lives. And they certainly didn't realize that those behaviors were going to be rewarded for it. No, they did what they did because they were in love with a king. And because of his generosity in their lives, they were generous with others, which meant more than, wow, sorry, and that's just terrible. Bummer. Bless your heart. No, loving the king means giving away what the king's blessed you with and funneling what the king has blessed you with to those who need his stuff. Even though my money can't get me into heaven, please hear this. Jesus makes it clear here that my use of money can keep me out. Let me say that again because that could be a little controversial. Jesus seems to be implying here that my use of money can keep me out of heaven. It can't get me in, but it can keep me out. Here's what I mean by that. Against the backdrop of the gospel, there is just one sin that disqualifies people from the presence of God. John 8 and 24 is clear about this. Unless you believe I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. But in preparing people for eternity, Jesus seems to be saying here in Matthew 25 that the surest sign that you've enthroned him on your heart is that you have dethroned greed. Jesus would say this, it's how I best know that you're taking your cues from me. It's how you use your money, or actually how you use my money. Because the way you handle my money in this world is the clearest indicator for you trusting me for the next world. Now, if you think that's that's true, church, let me ask you a question. I'm going to ask you anyway. I'm the preacher. How are you handling his money? How are you handling his money? Well, Jimmy, does he give us any clue how he wants us to? Oh, yeah. I can see no less than five ways that he points us to intentionally manage what's his that we're stewarding. Now, we're only going to talk about one. I know you're looking at your watch. But he said five this late in the sermon. We're going to do one today, okay? We'll do four next week, Lord willing. But all of them require one word in common. Action. Say action with me. We said two words today, right? The first one, entrusted. Say that one. The second one is action. He has entrusted you with his stuff. And he will encourage you to use his stuff his way. And that's going to require more than listening to a sermon. It's going to require some action. 
Remember he says when he's talking about the parable of the guys that he gave different assets to to manage. To one of the stewards he says the man had received five bags of gold, went at once and put his money to work. I tried to underscore that. I hope you do. Went at once and put his money to work. Now I'm underscoring that because I appreciate your attention and y'all are listening so well this morning. But I would appreciate more your action. And so would God. Here's action step number one. Get out of financial bondage as quickly as you can. Every one of you, get out of bondage financially as quickly as you can. That's called debt in our society. We started off this year with the Freedom Series. And I ask you to write on a couple of cards the area in your life that you most wanted to be unenslaved, broken out of for bondage, And most of you said, the master in my life that I want to eliminate is debt. There's a financial stress that I'm in. Now, that's not surprising because in this culture, too many of us who are Christians drank the culture's Kool-Aid that says, play now, pay later. And that, my friend, is a pathway to prison. Don't take my word from it. Take it from the wisest man to ever have lived. Proverbs 21.5 says, good planning and hard work lead to prosperity. Good planning and hard work lead to prosperity. But hasty shortcuts lead to poverty. Church, one shortcut that I have witnessed in the majority of the families that constantly seem to have financial struggles that we work with is they determine to get now through credit what they should have waited to pay for with cash. Another proverb from the wise Solomon He says, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is a slave to the lender. Friend, plain and simple, debt puts you in bondage. There are too many Christians, though, who think that they are members of Congress and they can spend more than what they have. Is that not nuts? Have you seen one of our deficit calculators lately? It's crazy. Google that, our deficit, and just watch those numbers run in the trillions of dollars, soon to be in the zillions of dollars. And we think we have money in this country. Church, all of us need to learn this. Act your wage. Can we be a light for that? Can the church of Jesus Christ be known for acting our wage? That would be hugely helpful. Here's one reason that we should, because debt as a lifestyle is going to hinder you from living in the fullness of God's kingdom. Here's what I mean by that. God's going to bring to you opportunities to unite people who are far from Him with the living Christ. And those are going to hinge largely on finances. And many of you are going to say, sorry, can't help. I got debts to pay. And you're going to miss out, because it really is better to give than to receive. It really is. Jesus said that, not me. Did you know the IRS reports that the average filer pays 10 times more in interest than they give away to charity or the church? The average filer pays 10 times more in interest than they give away to charity or the church. That is poor use of his money. To change that, you're going to have to have a plan. Because you may have wandered into debt, but I promise you this, you will not wander out. You won't. You have to intend to get free. You have to be intentional to get free. 
And for many of you, that means you're going to have to do some plastic surgery. Now, I'm not talking about your face, okay? This is from Dave Ramsey. It's about your credit cards. We need to do some plastic surgery and cut those puppies up. If you don't get anything out of practical stuff, you need to get rid of those credit cards if you are in debt and paying on credit cards. Stop living as if credit's your provider. Start living as if God is. I noticed this morning there's very few people signed up for our FPU class. That's okay if we're all covered. We all have our training. I know better. Some of you are going to put off this Dave Ramsey course that's going to start on the 25th. You'll get that another time. No, you won't. No, you won't. Does it really help? Let me let Ty Taylor tell you. He sent me this email this last week. I said, you know, has FPU had any impact on your family? He said, oh, yeah. I said, would you send that to me? Here's what he wrote. Dear Jimmy, the FPU course, FPU course was life-changing for Chelsea and me. Before FPU, we had no financial game plan, none. And like many people, often had more month at the end of the month than money. Despite having two really good jobs. There was a time not long ago, he says, that we took the course, before we took the course, that a $600 bill came in for our septic tank being serviced and repaired. It was a huge source of stress and anxiety for our family. We didn't know how we were going to pay for it. And we had credit cards, and we always paid them off every month, but once this bill came in and we were using the pay for some medical bills and some other expenses, we quickly fell behind in our payments, and we weren't paying them off every month. But a year before we took the course, we took out another personal loan on top of the credit cards we had to help us some major car repairs that Chelsea's car needed and to pay off a balance of taxes we owed the IRS. It was frustrating to say the least. And Ty writes, as for me as the head of my household, it was emasculating and embarrassing. When we began FPU, we had roughly $13,000 in debt from medical bills, the personal loan, and other miscellaneous expenses that were thrown in. After the first few weeks in the course, we immediately saved up and we created an emergency fund. And we began budget meetings weekly. That was very painful and very scary, he said. Very tedious, but we stuck with it. And immediately, we felt better as we regained control of where our money was going. We cut up our credit cards We made it a goal to be debt-free except for our house in a year, and we began. We began what Dave calls the debt snowball, using extra money to pay off little debts and letting that roll into the next debt and letting that roll into the next debt and into the next debt. And in January of the next year, just 10 months later, we were debt-free except for our house, and we still are today. He writes, it was not easy. In fact, without the safety net of credit cards during those few months following FPU, there were some pretty scary days where our bank account dipped dangerously low while we tried to adjust to our new lifestyle. But it was absolutely worth it, big bold letters. We still sit down and set our budget at the beginning of every month. We do periodic checkups throughout the month to make sure that we're staying on track. Chelsea and I have a plan for our money, which is so empowering. I love those words. And since FPU, we have encountered our fair share of unexpected and unplanned expenses that usually would have blown us up financially. Today, they're more like minor inconveniences because our emergency fund, we are definitely not perfect in all the things that we do with money, but 
We're in a much better place financially, relationally, and spiritually since we took the class. Ty will tell you that they had some things that came across their paths all during this time that was pretty tempting. Not because they were bad, but because it was just wrong to have them now. And I just want to say as we close this up that learning to honor God and his money with a plan is one of the most spiritual things you can do, friend. It's one of the reasons why Jesus said this. You can't serve me and money at the same time. Now, I can help you make a servant of money, but you can't serve me and money at the same time. Take it from a preacher who's learned that the hard way. He's right. Some of you are living the hard way now, and you don't have to. Maybe it's not the Twin Towers that's ever given you bearings for your life, but something does. And I just want to say this. If it's somebody other than Jesus Christ, it's less of a guide that you need for your life. The Hebrew writer says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And I'm encouraging you to do just that in regards to your money. Fix your eyes on Jesus, okay? And he'll give you not just financial peace, I promise you, he'll give you a peace that passes all understanding. Father, we come to you this morning hearing your word, but we're asking, Spirit, would you, would you translate this from just good thoughts, spiritual thoughts, into good actions, the spiritual actions? You may have brought some folks in here today who, who, man, they've made a mess of more than just how they handle their money because their bearings have been coming from something else other than your son. And they may be Christians, and I just want to have, have, ask you to nudge them towards one of our shepherds or to myself that we could pray over them that they would lift their gaze off of anything else but you for their finances, for their marriage, for their employment, for their health. Father, we need you. And we're coming this morning as a church family to say, first of all, for your body here today, for the church, forgive us for fixing our eyes on anything else but you. And if you brought someone here today who has been thinking about becoming a follower of yours, but today hearing this gospel touched their heart in a special way, would you, would you have them come find me? We so much, Father, want to see more than just financial peace in people's lives. We want to see that peace that passes all understanding. You promised could be ours. And we ask us it powerfully in Jesus' name and everybody said. Let's stand. Let's praise him, church.